Arteta! What a Saturday was exciting. Attacking play was inviting. There was snow on the ground. We're sending Sam down. Playing in a tyranny wonderland. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Alex Smith, the Black Man Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, look, I don't know if you understood, but for me it was pretty clear. The minute you saw those snowflakes and you saw tyranny, no gloves, no snood, no leggings, you knew he was scoring a wonder goal, and he did that indeed. Uh, I have to say, though, I did enjoy seeing Ainsley Maitland-Niles dressed for uh, teaching his hot yoga class after the game, so that was good. What a fun day. What a fun club. Where did this come from? 2021 already looking up, uh, and I just want to say thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, we've got so much happening this month. Uh, Clive and I will be doing our first Transfer Rumor Pod for patrons this week. We have a, a Smith Row retrospective say how can it be a retrospective because we're going to examine his time at Huddersfield understand that a little better with a special guest so that's coming up lots of good stuff coming up but right now what is coming up is hopefully a great pod about a great win and here to talk about it with me is Paul you can find him on Twitter at pause my pants hello pause Woo-hoo. and Clive you can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC hello Clive hello hello and Tim you can find him on Twitter at Stuberto. hello Tim hello there Tim good good new year uh I, I assume you know a big dinner with friends out at the restaurant and then clubbing till till dawn, something like that. Yeah. Every, everyone, Tim, did, did you go dinner, dinner and clubbing? I assume. No, <laughs> no, 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 no dinner, no clubbing. Uh, Absolutely nothing. Cl- Clive, I assumed jet. I was working on my video. Yeah. Well, we, we know that <laughs> Paul leads a sad life in a video studio, making videos of sinking uh, Sam Allardyce talking to horses neighing. You should check that out on Twitter. Uh, uh, Clive, I assume, jetted off to Ibiza, clubbing all night and then uh, back to London for for maybe like a, a, a breakfast, a breakfast cocktail. Yeah. I mean, lockdown life. Really quiet. No. Yeah. Just yeah. simple, simple. Yeah. I, Go for a walk, come back home, start drinking and eating. That's the life I'm leading. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did, <clears throat> obviously, the Concord to Paris, uh, partied there, Concord back, uh, and then just, you know, back to regular life. So, no, no, none of us did any of that. We all sat home, did nothing, stared at the wall, the walls we've been staring at for a long time. But you know what? We did get to watch uh, some exciting attack in football. By the way, guys, this is me trying to do that friendly banter waffle stuff that that uh our and gutter blog do at the beginning of their podcast and like i don't know if you guys are just perplexed but, by what i'm andrew doing it. actually like yeah, no the difference is andrew actually likes his guest yeah no that that is, that is a substantial difference i mean the, the, the lack of animosity and antipathy between the participants is, is a crucial part of it but like like the, the, the just total lack of give and take here is is suddenly making me realize that we have we have nothing between one another other than just discussing football and i'm I'm quite heartbroken about it. Thankfully, the football is worth discussing. Tim, anything else you want to add to that um, wordy intro that that you did? (laughs) No. No. Great. (laughs) Super. Um, Alrighty then. Well, I did stuff. All right. You did mind your own business. Great. Um, Let me just ask because this would make me feel a hell of a lot better about what just happened. Can you guys actually hear me at all, or is this one of those situations where my internet is so bad you're not trying to be rude to me, you just can't hear me? It's going okay because, like, I can hear about half the words, and Clive mm. hears the other half, and then we message in the chat and put it together. Yeah, and yeah. that's all we need, really. 
We're, I mean, we only hear half of what you say, and we answer our own questions anyway, so just get on with it. <laughs> Touche. This has been a humbling introduction for me, I have to say. I'm, I'm, hang on, let me just make podcast note. No more friendly banter at the beginning. Okay, that's good. Yeah, you're terrible at it. You are terrible. Uh, look, I'm you're just a mean person. I'm a facilitator. That's all. I'm just trying to facilitate things. Um, and speaking of facilitators, we will get into our, our lovely facilitator, Emil Smith-Rowe. Um, so, so look, let, let's get on with it. And Tim, I'll start with you um, because you seem bursting at the seams with things to say uh, this fine day. <clears throat> um, look, this is, this is a thing now enjoying watching Arsenal play. And it's a thing that I think we're all going to have to adapt to and hopefully adapt to long-term. It is a thing, obviously, sparked by the introduction of of some youngsters. Now, I I think there was a lot of concern about whether Arteta would be able to continue to play the trio of Smith-Rowe, Saka, and Martinelli. Uh, What would have been the third game in in seven days, he opted to rest Martinelli. It worked out brilliantly. But once again, again, Smith-Rowe and Saka were at the heart of it. I'm curious for you, do you think that this sort of revitalization of our attacking play is purely down to the influence of, of Smith-Rowe in that play, uh, position between the lines? Or is there a tactical tweak here that maybe isn't getting headlines, isn't being noticed as much because so much of the focus is on that that trio of youngsters? No, I, I think it's um, not entirely, but... Um, when I say entirely down to Smith Rowe, I, I don't necessarily mean him as an individual. Uh, the the presence of like a competent number ten or or attacking eight, whatever you know you want to label him as, just to knit things together. It's just brought the, it's just brought a couple of players up a level. Um, mm. I think. I think first off. It's um it's brought the best out of Saka having someone to combine with. We've seen Saka on the right a couple of times and he's been okay. He hasn't been this good. Um, again, which is not a, crit- a criticism of him because he's been bloody brilliant, quite frankly, this season. But you know he's gone up a level. Um, he you know he was playing in all of those defeats um, and he didn't look this good. Um, and I, I just think having someone to combine with him, him and Smith Rowe really seem to have a really good understanding. Um, it's brought the best out of Lacazette because all of a sudden he's got runners all over, all around him, which is exactly what he needs, exactly what he hasn't had, players bursting beyond him. You know, you look at that second goal and, and you know, Lacazette is a part of that, almost mm. in the way that Giroud used to be a part of those kind of ticky-tacker goals that you saw. He just kind of, he saw some passing and he thought, oh, okay. You know, almost like a, a bee going towards a flower. He thought, oh, okay, there's something interesting happening here. I, I, I quite like the look of this. And then, you know, he he plays the pass around the corner. And crucially after that, Smith, Rowe and Saka are the ones that run beyond him. He doesn't really go anywhere after that. And that's that's been a problem in um, in recent weeks. But it's not a problem when he's got guys bursting beyond him. So he comes short, he links, the two younger players just go running beyond him. That is exactly... And, and again, Lacazette is much better than the player we have seen earlier this season. And I've always attributed that mainly to the loss of Ramsey and Ozil, who are two mm. players I think he really enjoyed playing with to do that kind of short combination play. So I think you're getting a much better Lacazette as a result. You're getting a much better Saka. Um, you know, and then in, in midfield, he's only played one of the games. I thought Ceballos looked much better. Um, as I suspected he would with the presence of like uh, a number 10 ahead of him because Sabios is that guy that sits between two different spokes of the wheel. He's the guy that sits, sits between your six and your 10 and, you know, receives the ball off one and gives it to the other. He looked much better. 
And so you can see, you know, much beyond the actual individual himself, Smith Rowe, just the presence of that extra. And, and it's not the thing is with Smith Rowe as well, I think that's crucial is not just what he's doing, like as a number 10 in terms of knitting things together. And, you know, all of a sudden we got Tierney on the left and he's not playing center back and left back. Now he's just mm-hmm. left back. We've got Saka on the right. That's threat on the right. We've got someone in the middle connecting it all. But the other thing that Smith Rowe does that is so important, you saw on the third goal is he gets in the box as well. He's got that kind of little bit of Ramsey um, to his play and we saw that against Chelsea where he got forward and he just missed that Bellerin cut back and then you look at um, the third goal against West Brom the ball comes off the post he's there again last three four months there would be nobody there that would mm-hmm. just bounce out to a defender off you go see you later but he's there to have the second shot and then like <laughs> and, and and that goal just proves you know um, the efficacy of shooting a lot because it happened all yep. right Fair play. One time it's a West Brom defender who takes a shot for us. Um, but but what you're seeing as well is, you know, and then you look at the fourth goal with Lacazette. It, it's a cross from Tierney, right? And how much have we kind of complained about crossing? Not crossing so much, but the conversation we've been having is where you cross from. Look at where Tierney crosses that from. He's in the area on the byline, drills that in. It's a can't miss chance. He's not out on the touchline trying to like toss it in, ra- like almost at random towards the penalty spot. And I think just having some players a little bit closer together, a little bit, you know, a little bit more connected, we're just getting the ball into better positions, basically. And, mm, and, and when we and get Smith Rowe is in the six yard box on that one too. It's, it's, yep. it's yep, just a, takes... a yard back from Laka. Indeed, which takes focus off Lacazette, so that all of the West Brom defenders aren't then just around him, and and it is, there's there's just so much more fluidity to it. And and I guess maybe this is a discussion we'll have, but I guess the question for Arteta, one of many questions, is, you know, Smith Rowe can't play every minute of every game. So what do we do when he can't play? Mm, well, and and that's sort of where my question is hinting at a little bit because I think. As important as Smith Rowe, Martinelli, and Saka have been in this run, and, and Smith Rowe, the most important in terms of how he's changed the dynamic, I think it is a tactical tweak that can be done without Smith Rowe. Maybe we don't have anyone else who will do it quite as well. But to your point about Lacazette, that that beautiful goal that Saka scores, where does Lacazette play his little layoff pass from? The edge of the box. He's been playing those passes for the last year. Where's he been playing them from? The midfield strike. You know what I mean? Um, he... He finishes two chances in the box because he's not trying to huff and puff his way back from central midfield that he's been occupying. I think one of the tweaks that has been really relevant here is in going to the 4-2-3-1, it's not just that we have a player between the lines. It's that players are in much more natural positions and they look, the automatisms, the the sort of intuitive play just seems a lot better. And I, you know, I really liked when Arteta first arrived, this sort of Pep-style calculus football where players you know he's a fullback tucked in center back stroke midfielder who becomes the 10 like it's neat and it's evolutionary and it's exciting but what you realize is for the players it's also damn confusing and the players just seem to be occupying much more straightforward positions now that they seem to understand Tierney gets to be a fullback which is what he's excellent at um you know Smith Rowe gets to play between the lines the central midfielders occupy central spaces the wingers get to come in from wide spaces and the striker gets to be around the box and it it does work and Clive what we've seen as a result is sort of what we saw on Thursday nights this season. 
combination play around the area, more bodies around the penalty area. And the funny thing is, it's not like West Brom didn't ever have opportunities to hurt us in this game. But when you put up almost four expected goals, that doesn't matter. That's what we, when we talked about variance, the reason it mattered so much is when your XG is 0.3 and there's a 0.4, you need every break to go your way. When your XG is four, you battered them and you're going to batter them. And we did. And sure, they had a little half chance here or threat there, but who cares? So like, I mean, for you, when you look at that combination play around the area and the way we have, we have pushed Paul's toothpaste up the tube as he is discussed for ages and and while i am sick to death of it he's he's proven right i mean do you think that the tactical tweak as much as the personnel tweak is is a big part of it and that it can be reproduced even when we have to maybe use other personnel to get it done yeah i hope so otherwise we're doomed aren't we i never we're i never look at i never look at we get wrapped up in these first 11s and I, I, I'm as soon as I see somebody that does well I'm already thinking okay how can he be replaced Cause that's how you manage things you mm. don't you don't wrap your whole life into one or two players you might you, you wrap it up into a philosophy and a pattern and a way of working a way of playing right so and so the good thing is I was thinking actually I actually did a bit of, bit of a Tim thing actually I went back in time a little bit went back in time to 2008 2009 when we had a number of number 10s in our team. So we had Riziki, Kleb, Diaby, um, Fabregas, all these type of Nasri, that type of era, right? So, and they're all number 10s, really. They're all number 10s deployed in different areas of the pitch. And at the time, I was thinking, this is crazy football. I mean, even Van Persie played in there. So it's like another number 10 or Adipay or... So I thought, this is, this is crazy football. But actually, it was something that's really quite modern. Because what you developed was a pattern of play that was rip, that was really replicated by rotation, by movement, by switching positions, taking each other positions, but really intelligence on the football. And what that team lacked was the ability to <laughs> stand up to being kicked off the pitch, which wasn't allowed because these foreigners came in and showed the <laughs> British how to play. So we have to kick them. We've got to make it hard for them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Let's not give them any protection because that would be... That would be stupid. What else that team lacked was a little bit of a defensive um, strategy. So there wasn't the big emphasis on pressing. wasn't a big emphasis on counter-fouling as there is today. Imagine those players today with today's modern defensive strategy tactics. They'd never get run on because they just foul people quickly. They could all get to the sprint really quickly. And so it would be really interesting to watch that team in this in this era. And what I'm looking at with Arsenal is we've just seen two or, th- two or three more players in the team that are playing with what Arteta called one brain. And one brain, really, for me, I, I love that statement. You're trying to get players that are like-minded, that move off each other, that work out how each other play. And when you saw the second goal, that's a one-brain goal. It just came from players that understand movements, understand receiving on the safe side, understand when to go inside rather than outside, allow space for a runner, third man run, they could see that goal developing before it happened. Right? So that's, that is a classic one brain goal. So when people say, oh, Arteta's system, for me, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to create, he, could, he said it in one of his first interviews, he's trying to create a team that thinks as one. And I think the players that we've seen think alike. Mm. So we look at the players and what they do, actually, they just think alike. This really smart things like when Shaka goes to press the ball, Smith Bro goes to double pivot. He's making tackles in front of the back four. 
He's not looking at his mate going to press the ball and thinking, I'm number 10, I'm going to run next to him. He'd know, I'm going to go back and fill in for him. Yeah. That's one brain. Mm. That's smart football. And I think we, we overemphasize. I, I look at it differently, right? Because I look at it from a repeatability perspective rather than what have I just seen. So I'm thinking, when I see these movements, this can be repeated. When I see it's linked with um, certain players, we'll probably go on to that later in the week, Helia, but I'm really excited by it because these are intelligent footballers. And so when I was moaning about us being dumb, mm. I just wanted to look back at some of the dumb football we played. Dumb, <laughs> That must dumb, have been fun. Dumb. I mean, not, <laughs> not, it doesn't sound like a fun way to spend so your day, dumb. but be, be my guest. <laughs> it's just like, when you see it and you see, you're watching the screen, no, no, don't turn that way. Oh my God, you've turned that way. I oh, know you've gone backwards. Why are you going backwards? I think the two or three, one or two things have really been quite quickly. Obviously, the additions of the young players, great. Squeezing up the back line, I'm convinced that's a big thing. Making sure we pass forward. We saw the Chelsea game when we passed forward. We saw the, was it the first half of the um, Brighton game when we reverted back to type and how we looked. Mm. Straight away, people are not moving because they don't win the ball's coming. And we move back to the certainty of passing forward sharply, following your pass against West Brom. Suddenly we look connected. Suddenly we have passing options. Simple principles put in place and held in place. And also held in place by the players to say, I'm not accepting that backward pass. Pass it forward. Because now we can trust you. It's coming. It's coming from our back players holding. It's coming from our centre mid like Shaka. It's coming. I can move. I can drop in. I can go and support. I can go and connect. My run will not be wasted. Then we look connected. Yeah. Right. And and we've got people giving us the examples. They're leading by examples. And the people that are leading by examples are not the ones we thought it would be. And that's been the, the surprise for me. But the philosophy is here. Now it's about adding to it, tweaking a few positions, getting rid of some idiots and <laughs> the stupid ones and adding some more brains. Add more brains, and we'll see this again, and it will look different all the time because the thing about creative players, the real creative ones that are good, they almost don't know what they're going to do. They're going to create something and invent something, but they just need people around them that think like them to make it really work. Yeah, well said. I I mean, uh, I I appreciate eliminating stupidity wherever and whenever possible, (laughs) and to the extent that we have eliminated stupid football, I I am here for it. Um, Paul, I want to just hone in on the on the uh, Saka goal for a minute, and and we can come to the Tierney one maybe next. I realize that that was the first one chronologically, but the Saka goal I think is sort of a really interesting example of this the difference both in terms of tactics and in terms of the quality of the players. So the things that really light up for me here, you know, Bellerin gets it. He he slides it over to um, Smith Rowe, who plays it in to uh, pardon me to Saka, who plays it in Smith Rowe who lays it off to Lacazette, who turns and plays it out to Smith-Rowe and then back to Saka. And like, I think the things that are really neat about this, first of all, the guy popping up between the lines is great and all that, but both Smith-Rowe and Saka carry on their run. Now, if you watch that goal really carefully, right? When the ball goes into Lacazette, Saka holds his run just for a minute. Like he's going to stop. He, he kind of hesitates just for a split second. You can watch it. And he looks to the right, and he sees that Smith-Rowe has kept going. And the minute he sees that, he, he turns on the Jets again and gets into the box to score. And I think it's that sort of 
critical moment where he realizes, oh, there's a player making that run. There's a player taking that risk. There's a player taking that responsibility. And I, I just think that we've seen a lot of players who want to come inside, who want to stay deep, who who don't want to run beyond, who don't who aren't adventurous, who don't want to go score goals, go push the ball forward, go drive into dangerous areas. And so that goal isn't just about spacing, isn't just about individual talent, but I think it's also about intention to play like Clive always talks about. So for you, you know, what are some of the moments in that goal that stand out, not just in terms of the quality, although certainly important, but also in terms of a different dynamic from what we've seen maybe in the way other players have approached, you know, those kinds of attacking moves. Yeah, so like... Uh, the, the first thing that struck me after the goal was that this was this was kind of a return to we're better than you football. Mm. Uh, this was kind of football on speed. And like there's just a moment. Bellerin does this nothing pass to Smith Rowe, who first time again immediately around the corner knocks it to Saka, who flicks it to Laka. And Laka's pass is not to be underestimated. It's probably it's by far the most technical of all the passes in the connection. Everything else is just speed and automatism and kind of ESP mind reading. And like the moment Laka flicks it off uh, to ESR, you just see the two guys are just like they're whoring into the box. Him and Saka just hit the go button, and they're, they don't just get past their back line. They tear past them. There's nobody even close by the time ESR flicks it across to, to Saka. They're just straight through, done and gone. And it's, it's like, whoa. It's, they're working at a speed twice kind of what anything on the West Brom side can come up with twice anything we've seen for so long. And it then, it, like, that stuff just creeps into the game. You have the Ceballos uh, on 15 minutes th- does that no-look round the corner pass over the top to Saka where he knows he's going to make that run. People know that the other guy's going to make the run now. And so it's that understanding that it's go time. The, the pass comes, you go for it. And, it, you know, they tried a couple of other things before that that didn't quite come off but nearly did. And that's just like those guys get close enough to each other. You get the overload with Smithrow, Bellerin, Laka, and Saka, and you just—it's like who's who's flicking it to who, and then we go. Um, it was just—it was special. It was a moment, a throwback moment to the best of Wenger ball, and you know that the the wearing your socks down, which he didn't do at Huddersfield, Smithrow. Mm. Uh, but he's doing here um, is a statement, I think, that uh, there's no point in trying to kick me. My feet won't be there. I mean, he he jumps like people are still hacking at him. He just jumps over the tackles. You know, if he gets fouled at the moment, it's because he wants the foul uh, or because you've bodied him. But, you, you know, he, he's got that Grealish thing of I'm putting my socks down. I want you to come at me. Saka has it, too. Uh, he he's now he's got a bit of the Aryan Robbins with him, not in terms of he, not the same body language, but he's over there on the right, and they know about him now, and he's fine with that because that means you got a decision to make as a defender, and they're just they're beginning to play with players, um, the socks down thing, Saka kind of uh, flirting with the the full back who who's thinking holy shit it's Saka, um, I, I mean he. 
he he can go either way now, as Tim talked about on on the last part. He can he can take it onto his right and put that cross in, and it'll be a good cross. He'll get a shot off, which he's getting better and better at. Um, I I put my little video together uh, <laughs> yesterday and circulating it, but one of the things that struck me after watching these clips time and time again is suddenly there was that thing I hadn't noticed. You know that uh, psycho- psychological study where they have a bunch of people on the stage uh, throwing a ball to each other and nobody notices a gorilla, a man in a gorilla suit walking around because you've been told to count the number of passes between people. Have you ever seen that thing? A YouTube I mean, video? Sure. <laughs> it, it's kind of fascinating because I, I did all of this editing and I've been talking about ESR for a bit. And then I went back and looked at all the clips and I just watched ESR's movement. Holy fuck. Mm. He's so good. He's so... Uh, it's a terrible, unfair comparison to make because I've talked about the Ramsey thing, and I think there really is a lot of that Ramsey about him, the flicks, and then the tearing into the box, into the six-yard box. I have him down as our fourth man, because he'll always be one of the four men, but he's actually often the second, third, sometimes first into the box. He just pours in there. Mm. But the thing I was going to say that he reminds me about, that's the that's the, the uh, Ramsey comp. The Ozil comp for me, which is the one I'm afraid to make, is very early Ozil when he used to play a ball and tear up the pitch or he'd move into space really quickly, but it's immediate. And his movement into little pockets, his his simple but uh, beautiful little arcs where he goes, he kind of, he heads up but over to the right or, or into a little pocket very, very quickly. Such fast decision-making. Um if you watch my the video I put out for any reason, the best reason is just watch ESR's movement and where he goes. And he just, time and time again, he doesn't run into the box like other people do. Like the Willock comparison is just unfair on Willock now because um, for, for me, Willock is more of an eight who will run into the box. But that's where the comparison with ESR stops. Well, the technical level he is does. night and day. I mean, there's no comparing that. Well, well, that's the first thing that comes to your mind to to disqualify. But I actually think it's the runs that, that are truly the difference. The difference between running into the box and then look at what ESR does in terms of his runs, where he goes. Every little move is a move to somewhere. He's never just standing somewhere. Mm. It's... It's re- there's something really special there with ESR. Yeah. Those little movements, like even on that goal, look where he goes. Uh, uh, you know, he he's to the left of Bellerin, but he's to the right putting that cross in. It's super intelligent. I mean, he knows where the space is to go. You know, it doesn't make any sense for him to just stay central, so he vacates that space, and that gives Saka the room to run beyond Lacazette. No, it's it's brilliant, and... I mean, he and we're going to do a, a dedicated podcast on him this week, and I'm I'm excited to do it. And it's like, I, I just want to try to identify how much is him, a lot, yeah, yeah. by the way, and how much is the, the tactical tweak, the positioning of a player in that space. And again, I don't know that we have another player that would play the role as effectively as him, but to Clive's point, we're going to have to find ways to play like this sure. with different players in the team. Um and I don't think we have a player quite like Smith Rowe, but I hope we've learned a lesson here because, you know, obviously there is going to be a Crapatron situation here. And, and Paul, I don't know if you ran West Brom through the Crapatron, but I imagine that it crapped out a pretty crappy number. Is that well, fair? Well, they were pretty good for the first, until the Tierney goal and the Saka goal. 
they were actually reasonable competition. I would have had them at a 7.3, but mm. they dropped to a 2.1 third level by the time the second goal went in. Yeah, they, they lost them. the will to live, um, and I, I don't yeah. think they particularly care to play for Sam Allardyce, which is understandable. But But here's the point. The problem for Arsenal hasn't been playing competitive football in the big games. The problem for Arsenal has been playing consistent attacking football against weaker sides. You know, we've beaten some smaller teams by, you know, 1-0 with 0.7 XG to 0.3. This was four expected goals. This was whatever it was, 22 shots. This was players around the area. And I, I think the reason I get excited about a performance like this isn't because of the quality of the competition. It's precisely because they suck. And because we played the way a big club should play against a bad team, pressure them, push them back, force them to capitulate, and we did all of that. And, and I think that is what we needed to see. Not that we could grind out a result against a big team playing counterattacking football, but that we could play front-footed football and dominate. And we did that. And I think that's really exciting. And look, to, to Paul's point, Tim, West Brom started reasonably okay, tolerable, and it was up to Kieran Tierney to open the scoring. And he does so spectacularly. I think Kieran Tierney's cult status, I think his cult hero status, the Tesco bag thing, the you know no gloves in the snow thing, is unfortunately does a disservice to him because he mm. winds up being seen as this gritty, hard-nosed character, and so he doesn't get the praise for some of the technical quality and skillfulness of his play. Um, I thought early in the season he was kind of a push-and-run guy in, in some respects, but what you're seeing now is there's a real additional level to his game. He slid a beautifully cultured pass across to Smith Rowe um, for a, a, a near goal. I guess it was against Brighton, maybe against Chelsea. He, he rounds the defender and gets to the byline for the, for the um, penalty here. He tricks his way past um, the fullback twice and curls in a beautiful shot from inside the box, you know, powerfully to, to open the scoring. These aren't just gritty plays, you know, push run and cross. He also has the assist for Lacazette, of course, which is a cross, but from the inside the box, as you pointed out, these are plays of, of exceptional quality and skillfulness. And so I think we really are very fortunate to have this guy here at 23. You know, he's basically Maitland-Niles age, right? A, a, a guy who we really mm. still hope makes it. I mean, he's you know a little older, but this is a guy who has made it and, and still probably has another level to go up. So in addition to maybe waxing lyrical about that goal, do you have any thoughts on how maybe the switch to being more of a true fullback has let him express some of the quality in his game that he, that he wasn't able to previously? Yeah, absolutely. It's just allowed him to push, a, just to play a little bit higher up the pitch because, I mean, it, it, it's almost redundant to say when you're also the third centre-back, you kind of got to look after your post there a little bit and you've mm -hmm. probably got to be, um, not have trepidation, but you've got to be a bit cautious about just pushing up the line. And, and what he's doing now is like, is pushing up is just pushing up the line and going up and going up and uh and initially i think i said after the chelsea pod i, I thought that a lot of that was to do with uh, martinelli because you know when martinelli's ahead of you uh pressing everyone and running after everything then you've kind of got to get behind that but um you know again martinelli wasn't there and and, and look he was behind a bamiang who you know is still still a pretty good player um but but not the same type and and i think I think you, what I really feel like is that Tin has really found his place in this team. Um, I mean, I think like not that I didn't feel like that at the beginning of the season anyway. I like I, I think Tin's star has been on the rise for a little while, certainly with the fans. I I completely agree with you. I think a lot of that is down to him being a, a bit of a cult hero, 
And, you know, we should say that, like, Bellerin played in short sleeves as well. Um, but obviously he doesn't he doesn't quite have that um, like that Scottish stereotype, I guess, mm. going on. But, um, you know, I, I said this on the instant reaction pod, but I just finished finally reading the uh, 89 book by Amy Lawrence. And, um, you know, a lot of and she interviews lots of people about that 1989 team. And like Nick Hornby was saying, you know, it's, it's really it, what was special about that team. Is you didn't feel like you were going to lose the players. And it was this kind of unique blend of guys who'd who'd had to work to get to Arsenal and you you felt like they felt quite privileged to play for Arsenal, but at the same time, you weren't worried about Barcelona and Juventus taking them um, and that he felt like that was a, a real moment in time that might not be repeated and it probably won't. But Tierney feels like that kind of player, um, I guess. And, and I'm not sure um, whether his, you know, his Britishness has anything to do with that. Um, and, and like I really... You know, like like on one hand, I think that would probably make sense just because if you grow up somewhere, you've probably got, um, you know, you've probably got like a, a better sense, not a better sense of the pecking order of football clubs. But do you know what I mean? When you grow up in that culture. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. yeah. It's it's, you know, it's just kind of natural that that which is, you know, obviously not to say that foreign players can't feel like that. And we've had tons of foreign players that, that obviously do. And we've had a lot of British players who don't. Um, but, you know, it, it feels like Celtic to Arsenal feels like almost like quite an old fashioned trajectory that we might have seen in like the 80s, like with Charlie Nicholas or something like that. Or, hey, Tim, or maybe the early 90s. Yeah. Can I add, um, it was very interesting that Gary Neville does his whatever something box thing. And he had uh, Wayne Rooney and they were talking about when Rooney was pushing to leave United. Mm. And they just had a real chat around. Rooney was saying, you know. It, it's di- it was different for me. You guys were United lads, which is kind of a weird mm. thing to say when you, but like, but to your point, uh, you know, it, it, it's different depending on what country you came from and that hierarchy of clubs. And I agree with you. I think when you look at Tierney, you think he's probably a lifer at Arsenal. It doesn't get from, from where he's been to where he's going. Um, He's the kind of guy who will say, well, I could tr- I could butterfly around, but this is a top-level club, and I can be a player for this club. For He's a career kind of player. He wants to spend yeah. one career. He'd love it to have been Celtic, but they weren't in the Premier League. Yeah. Um, it's Arsenal, and, uh, and like it is different for different players, for foreign players. Can, can I interject player- there, though? I, I, I actually well, disagree. Well, hang- yeah, sorry, yeah. Well, it's different for foreign players. It's different for players who move from one club to another club within the Premier League. Uh, there's there is something special. I do think that's an Arsenal throwback thing to players of old who move from a smaller club to Arsenal, and and depending a little bit depending on their mentality. Tierney is a different character, but. He's a throwback to that. So yeah, sorry, I, I think there's a yeah. Please, please go ahead, Tim, and then I'll I'll, I'll be the curmudgeon and explain why I disagree with all this. Sure. There, I, I guess the only other thing I'd say is Tierney. Um, it's it's a nice balance actually. On one hand, I, I must admit I had some doubts about buying a player from Celtic because the Scottish league is not what it was, to say the least. And I was thinking, hmm, if we'd bought a, like a left back from maybe I don't know Olympiacos or. 
you know, that because that's the kind of level that the Scottish League is at now. You know, would we have doubts about his ability to adapt? But what you do get when you buy a player from a club like that is you buy a player from a club who's used to winning, um, who's used to attacking teams and pushing teams back from fullback. Um, and, and, you know, I, like, for example, Shakhtar Donetsk had loads of Brazilian players and most of them adapted beautifully when they went to other bigger European clubs because they were used to playing, winning um, and, you know, playing in a club that was used to winning, winning all of the major trophies in their country. And on one hand, it can be you can have fears about the level they're playing at. But on the other hand, if you're a big club, sometimes it makes sense to buy from, you know, someone who's maybe um, I'm going to upset some Celtic for anyone within a Celtic affiliation, but someone who's who's uh, and look Celtic are huge are absolutely be careful, Tim. they are very huge. big <laughs> yes yeah no 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 they are they are like in a modern context they are a big club in the Scottish league in times of change but in terms of like their support and their size they are enormous because they are not just a Scottish club you know they have that the whole Irish connection as well and you know Celtic and Rangers it, it obviously it goes across football lines, but they are huge, huge football clubs with huge expectations. And so actually maybe it might, my thinking was a little bit wrong. And if so obviously as long as you, the player you buy is good enough, it's probably quite a good thing for Arsenal to buy a player from a club like that. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, like he came from the biggest club in his country, a massive club to, you know, one of the top five or six clubs in England. I mean, is it different from going to Valencia from Celtic? Valencia is bigger than Celtic in a modern uh, context. They're not a bigger club. You know, I mean, Arsenal is a bigger club than Celtic in my view, but but like, I, I don't know. I But I think the thing that, that I, well, I want to challenge... Madrid and Barca, right? Well, I want to I want to challenge the idea. And, and Clive, I, w- I want you to come in this. I want to challenge the idea that just because a guy's gritty and he seems like us, he cares and he's a fighter and he doesn't wear gloves and, you know, he's great, like... That we tend to think that's, you know, that, that the players don't leave because the club screwed up or the contract guy is bad or they're too good for our club. The players leave because they don't care. They're not passionate. They're not gritty. They're, they're other. They're foreign. They're, you know, and this guy gets us and isn't foreign in, you know, in the, in the, in the, he is for, but you know what I mean? In, in the sort of not one of us kind of sense and, and, and he isn't gritty. Like the club still has to manage the contract, right? The club still has to match his ambition. If the player gets, continues on this trajectory if he looks you know he's 23 if at 25 he's playing even better than this and he's one of the best fullbacks in in England and he's scoring goals and creating assists and cutting out counterattacks and we haven't managed the contract right or we you know the club hasn't pulled itself out of this mire I don't think we can rely on his grit and caring and not wearing gloves in the snow keeping him here and I, I just want to be careful that that the tropes of, of culture and personality don't lead us to think that the club still doesn't have to manage a situation right now. I don't want to drag this down. It's so exciting that we have this guy and what he means. And, and Tim, I, I am fully on board with cult hero status kind of guy that he can be that guy. The club still has to get it right. You know what I mean? The club still has to move back up the table and, and reassume its rightful place in English football and manage the contract right. And the player's going to start to turn heads at, at some of the biggest clubs if he plays like this going forward. So... There's a lot more to it than just personality. I, I think, Tim, uh, uh, Clive, you didn't want to be cut out here, understandably. And I, I do want to get on to more of the goals and, and the fun stuff. But so how do you feel about that that sort of attachment that we feel to players and then project that the players feel the same as we do? 
Yeah, player attachment is very, very personal to lots of people. And uh, I'm online too, and I see what people are saying about him, and they, and they like him. And fair play to him. We like certain players for certain reasons. And the things that excite me about him is I'm hearing rumours about him being, you know, very competitive in training. You know, bringing intensity levels up. They have to calm him down. <laughs> I love that because I have a suspicion that our historically that it's been a bit quest like at London Colney and I want to see that change that somebody comes in brings in that mentality I like that I like the fact he's not just showing it in training he's not just showing it by wearing a short sleeve t-shirts and warm-ups and all the rest of it he's showing it by his bravery on the football pitch at a time when two weeks ago from one of the lowest periods my arse were watching life and it needed somebody like him and like Martelli and like Smith Rowe and like Sack and about three or four others that said, no, we are not having it. We are not having this. We are going to play our game. We are not too afraid to play. And that sort of stuff is what will stick in people's minds. That will make him a cult hero. What he does on the football pitch and how he plays and how he transmits himself to us. And I think that's a big thing in football, particularly down this virtual world we're all living in. How players are transmitting themselves and what their actions and what they're doing Clive, I think you make a great point because he opened up two of the last three games. It was him, his individual moment that opened up the first goal in two games. Yeah, and I think it's he's not just doing it with blood and guts. I mean, we've got two attacking fullbacks, and the one on the left hand side seems to be in quite good positioning defensively as well. There's a difference there. You see what I mean? And that's about timing, that's about commitment, that's about when you run, how you run, how committed you are, how you play in your own game pod on the left-hand side, what you do, just how you play is so certain that people can work with you and people love that about certain players. They're easy to play with and I imagine he's really easy to play with because of his effort and his work rate. And, and football fans connect with people for different reasons. I always felt that David Beckham had a great way to transmit himself to the Man United fans with his effort and how he played and his skill and technique as well. But they felt he played like they would play. Mm. And I think as a fan, you look on the pitch and think, he plays like I would like to play in my own mind. Do you know what I mean? In my, he does what we would want to do if we were able and had the talent and weren't five-stone heavy that you need to be. Do you know what I mean? And that's, yeah. that's, why I think, um, that's why I think people really connect with him. That's my opinion anyway, but I... I take Tim's points. Absolutely. And, and I agree with all that. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying Tierney will go. I'm saying that, like, I think it is important that we not believe that it is the, the players uh, having the right mindset, the right culture, the right mentality, the right attitude that keeps them at the club or not at the club. Because I think that exonerates the club from responsibility. You know, and look, it can surprise you. I mean, look, there are players who are foreign in the sense that, like, they have a home club, a home country they want to go back to. There's, you know, players who get just too big for the situation. There's Ronaldo leaving United. There's Sesk leaving Arsenal to go to his home club. There, there's examples of this. But, you know, also Michael Owen and, and David Beckham, you know, went to Real Madrid. Like, I'm sure there were fans at the time that were talking about them as England boys who'd be here forever and have the right approach. And, you know, things change. So... Uh, I don't but know. Beckham fell out with Ferguson yeah, as of opposed course, to of course. he wanted to move. Uh, so I think you're right. But but you're you're if you phrase it in a way that depending on the player it can be both because the Rooney um, Neville conversation is very instructive. Neither of them like they both immediately get that Neville 
and uh, Giggs are united players and that Rooney isn't, right? And it's not about being foreign, foreign, right? He's just not a united player. And, and there is an aspect in terms of hierarchy where we, we would see in old Arsenal teams, uh, guys from lesser clubs come to Arsenal and that's good enough for them for their whole career. And I take, like, this isn't every player, right? We're not saying every player feels like this. I get what Tim's saying specific. This is specific to a Tierney type, which is, uh, you, you know, Tierney might be unhappy and go back up north, but his next move isn't looking around to go to Barcelona or Real Madrid or something else. Can I ask you a question? It's Can I ask you a question about that? Let, yeah. Let's say two seasons from now, Real Madrid came in with a sixty million pound bid for Tierney. Do you think he'd be like, "Nah, I'm happy"? I mean, like, I guess I just can't. I I don't know why Do we I would think presume Tierney may, might be the one who says I prefer a career at Arsenal. Huh, I right. think he might be. Do I think he definitely would be? No. Do now, Be- Bellerin and Barcelona comes in with a hundred million pound. He's the greatest thing since sliced bread instead of a 20 million pound. Well, we, we put him on the plane whether money. he wants to go or not at that, at that point. Yeah. You know, that's a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it is a bit player specific. Sure. Uh, so well, like let's, you let's can make on. a ridiculous proposition where, but I think, you know, as that wasn't happening to these Arsenal players in 1989, right? Real Madrid wasn't coming in with 100 So, like, like for like in those kinds of situations, he does feel a little different. But you're still right. Like, you, the club has to do it right. The contracts mm-hmm. have to be right. Players shouldn't be fools. They have much more active agents these days than they did in 89. Uh, you know, movement is much more, you know, it's all, Look what everybody happened knows Cole. what everybody's on. A, a Back look, in the day, you didn't know what other players were getting pl- paid. Yeah. Well, look, like, look at Ashley Cole. Uh, yeah. a, a little snafu in terms of offering, you know, the money he wanted. And a guy who was an Arsenal man wound up at Chelsea, right? Sure. Um, but then the personality comes, like, there's a lot of factors, right? Uh, I, maybe it's hindsight, but I'd never say Ashley Cole and... Kieran Tierney are the same kinds of personalities. Tierney's a lifer. He'd love to have just stayed yeah, at Celtic maybe, for his maybe. whole bloody life and, and and rule the world. Yeah. All right. Well, let's not let's not bury ourselves under this conversation because it's it's one that is a long way off, and hopefully he will be here for a long time playing top level football. And I just I think what I'd like for us as a fan base is to see him beyond the Tesco bag and the no gloves in the snow because I, I you know I think that cult hero status is fun I think there's a really exceptional player that we're starting to see in terms of his technical level uh which I have to admit I didn't initially know whether it was in there and I, I think he's gone when up I put a level. him in my de- pull back of the decade yeah no without that was you were I have to admit you were ahead of your time and, and you may <laughs> wind up being right after all having said that it is a different decade but anyway um so Look, one of the things that I think, Tim, we we have an interesting dynamic going on here is the Lacazette-Obamiang thing because Lacazette has kind of um, rediscovered his form in a role that suits him a lot a lot better, a, a more of a true number nine role, not this weird 10-stroke nine thing, and he's closer to the box, and he, he looks like a player who's reinvigorated by that. And I think a lot of people are going to contrast that with Obamiang. I've gone 180 degrees on this Aubameyang performance. I started with him as sort of my stock-falling guy who struggled. You know, we, we had this vibrant attacking day, and he wasn't really involved. But when I really squint and look at it a little closer, he had a very typical Aubameyang day. He just didn't get the end product from it. He had a, mm-hmm. a far post run that's a tap in a way 
from being a goal. He has a long, you know, almost length of the pitch run that winds up with him firing a, a really hard shot straight at the keeper that on another day maybe, you know, gets between the keeper's hands or, or doesn't get kept out. Um, he has another one that I'm not uh, not quite remembering that, oh, it's it's a redirect, right? It comes off somebody in the box. Maybe it was a Willingen William. shot. Yeah, and then he, yeah. he redirects it and it just goes over. It's an instinctive move, but he's in the right position, the Aubameyang position. Yep. So I think the sort of shrugging of the shoulders and the looking disappointed, which you want your striker to look when he's not scoring goals, obscured for me a performance that is kind of the prototypical Aubameyang performance. Not very involved, but on another day, it's a brace or a hat trick. So, And he sets up the Tierney cross for Lacazette's fourth goal. That's Aubameyang who, yep, puts, yep, who yep. does the run up the pitch and passes so, it out to Tierney. Yeah, so while I, I don't want to say, hey, vintage Aubameyang, he's back, I, I think I've come around mm. from the idea that this was another in a string of worrying Aubameyang performances to saying this is closer to what you expect his contribution to be like. So do you, yeah. where on that spectrum do you fall in terms of wasn't involved enough disappointing or sort of closer to what an Aubameyang performance should look like? I, I thought that was a completely typical Aubameyang performance just mm. without a goal. Mm. I think, um, I think kind of what, ha- what begins to happen, where, particularly when you get, um, should we say like new shiny players in the team or exciting players is that, and, and I think we probably all do it to some degree or other, even if just subconsciously, is you start to write off what used to be there before and you start to look for reasons that, you know, like like Martinelli literally started um, a couple of games because Aubameyang wasn't fit, right? And he, he, played, he played really, really well in one of them and, and quite well in the second one. And so all of a sudden, it's, it, it's not just about Martinelli being good. You kind of look for reasons why he was better than the other guy. So you start to look super critically at the other guy. And a lot of the kind of commentary I was seeing like online during this game, I saw a lot of people complaining about things that I've never seen Aubameyang do. You know, like, um, oh, he's he's not involved enough. He's not, I mean, well, I'd say he's not combining enough. I, I think Paul's quite right. Go back and look at that fourth goal again. It's, you know, Aubameyang does combine with Tierney. And, and look, I'm sure he would prefer to have been in Lacazette's position than the one he was in, but he, he was there and, he you know, he did the job. Um, and, you know, like, I, I just, I was kind of looking at it and looking at what people were saying. And I was like, when has Aubameyang ever done any of those things? <laughs> like, he's a low-touch player that scores goals. Like, that that's, and gets in positions. And he was getting in positions again in this game. You know, he got one big chance against Brighton. I, I'm, I was never hugely worried, um, you know, that, that the cliff had come for Aubameyang or anything like that. Um, I thought there were uh, reasons for his form so far. And I think there have been real green, green shoots as the team has played better. Um, that, like that said, um, that there are some questions that, that Arteta is going to be thinking about probably as we speak. Um, we've already gone into the Canabamiang and Martinelli play in the same team one um, already. But, but the, the other one, Elliot, you, you kind of prefaced in your question to me is, is Lacazette a better fit? Here than Aubameyang. We we all know who the better player is, but if you put Martinelli on the left and Saka yeah, on the right, going. And throw number ten. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Lacazette a bit, because Lacazette comes short and combines, and he can do that because Martinelli will run in behind, Smith Rowe will run in behind, Saka like they will all run in behind him. Um, you know, two of them will run in behind him, one will come and combine with him. You know, the the balance of that front four arguably looks better now. I think it's probably a bit early to say that 
and we should acknowledge how fucking unbelievably quickly things change. If I'd have told you, Elliot, three weeks ago that we'd be having a discussion about whether Lacazette is a better fit for our front four because Smith Rowe's come in for three games and our embarrassment of it. riches. It, exactly, yeah. <laughs> because like Smith Rowe, who we all knew the talent of, but perhaps doubted the physical prowess um of has come in for three games and absolutely bossed it and Saka has been playing on the right and has looked uh, you know an absolute mm. like looked even better like all of these things were unforeseeable a couple of weeks ago so I'm I'm not ready to you know say yep Lacazette's better you know get you know get, get thee gone Abamyang. um and look that the fact is you know going back to the conversation we had at the beginning of the podcast we're going to need all of them like we're going to we're going to need to figure out a way not just to play a front four, but how we're going to have like seven or eight players who can play on the front four in mm. an, on any one game. And that's why I think the Newcastle game is so interesting because I think we'll see Willian and Pepe again. Maybe we'll see Nketiah up front. And, and then that's like, it, is that the come down, you know, or is that actually... We we we've seen like we've seen the way here. We've seen a way that that the football should be played. Do they get the the confidence boost? And and I think we'll see some things in that Newcastle game that that will perhaps um, give us you know a little bit of clarity. But ultimately, in two to three weeks, you know how these things go. Particularly when you do a podcast about every when you do two podcasts about every single Six game. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you you get very meta and very micro. And um and you un- you start to understand how quickly things change and how quickly conversations move on. If the next game was not Newcastle in the FA Cup though, and let's say it was a Premier League game, um, I you know I I, I think the qu- the question is maybe on pause because both Abamyang and Martinelli are feeling their way back from injuries, yeah. uh, different injuries, but at the moment. For the next, mm. maybe the next couple of games, you can afford to rotate that position and say it's due to their fitness and that you're looking after them. But sooner or later, that this this question is going to crop up again. And I think the answer for Arteta is to try and find a way that you know seven like someone like Pepe, for example. How can he contribute? How can he slot into this team? How does William slot back into this team? Because whether we like it or not, that's who we've got. That, those are the things that Arteta, I hope and think, is probably thinking about. I think he's probably thinking, OK, this front four works for now because teams haven't seen it before. They've seen it now. And, you know, the next time they play together, the next set of opponents is going to be a little bit wiser and they might not allow that second goal to happen mm. um, again. And so we'll have to find answers to that. And that might include rotation and things like that. So for me... It's great that we found, at least for now, a front four that seems to work together. It's about finding other combinations as well. Yeah, you know, this is where I I think, unfortunately, sometimes the, the club should guide selection decisions in a way. This is gonna, That's probably not right. But what I mean is, so Tim, Aubameyang is the present. We are committed to him in a very expensive way for three years. Martinelli mm-hmm. is the future. We hopefully will be committed to him for a very long time at a very high level. Lacazette is the past in that 
I can't imagine we're going to yep. give him a new contract. I mean, look, I, I think the guy has done a brilliant job to raise his level, but we can't be giving him another contract. Just It's just not the right thing for this club to do at this point. So yep. at that level, would you say that like that situation, the fact that we're very invested in Obama Yang succeeding for a few seasons with us and very invested in Martinelli developing and succeeding with us means that there's an incentive to try to make that group work more than there is an incentive for Lacazette to work. Now, of course, you don't want to do that at the expense of winning football games, but if it's a close call, that probably weighs into the, the decision-making, you would think, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that that's why, like, um, you know, I, I've said this about Bamiang and Martinelli thing a, a lot of times, but I, I don't think it's impossible, and I think he has to find a way because there is just no way that we can have one of those players on the bench, mm. um, at least not for another kind of two seasons or so. Like Mar- Martinelli is not the kind of talent who, in my view, needs... It, it's not one of those where you're like, oh, maybe you can rotate and bring him in slowly. Like, yeah, 10 Martinelli starts this is, season, 15... No, just play him. He's a star. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like Exactly. Martinelli, Saka. The, these, are, these are play them, guys, and play mm. them now. Like, they're ready. It's fine. Um, you know, the the only question is physical, really. It's not to do with their, their kind of ability at all. So we have to find a way for Aubameyang and Martinelli to work together. And for me, that way is very much about playing Martinelli off the left, Aubameyang up front, save his legs, have Martinelli chasing back, um, looking at, you know, uh, protecting fullbacks and stuff like that. And they can dovetail. They can move inside and outside each other. Um, the, the fact that they like to occupy the same space, to me, that's not so much of a problem because, oh no, now we've got two players um, in front of the goal. Shit. Um, that's not a problem. That is absolutely not a problem to have two players who like attacking the box. Um, that That's that's kind of that's good it's better than having one yeah um the, the the issue is more and i think it's easy to work on their movements and things like that I, th- I think that can come quite easily it's more the fact that they're low touch i think that's the that's the yeah. thing you've got to crack that means playing two high touch players with them and we know that saka is going to be one of those fine solved it's looking like smith Rowe could be another so let's find more players like that yeah, and you say, look, Saka, Willian, and ESR look like they will be the future and, and players that we have to invest heavily in and, and start to really make the, the foundation of the first team. But because of the contract we've given out to Aubameyang, you almost have to put him into that group as a guy who's got to work. It has to and, work. And I, I, I think that could help Willian as well if his role is simplified because he's a guy who's kind of out on the right, but we're asking him to drift into the center and stuff like that. No, if you've got like Martinelli and Aubameyang, kind of left centre forward. Willian can do his Willian thing that he has always done, which is hug that right touchline and fucking stay there. That is all he has ever done his whole career. I've got no idea why we thought he should do something different. Mm. But if you've got Martinelli, Aubameyang, Tierney over on that left-hand side, then Willian can just... He doesn't have to try and do two jobs at once. He can do his drop the shoulder, get the ball in. And you know what? When he gets the ball in we got two players who want to attack the ball. So I think it could help him too. Mm. Alternatively, you could get Willie in a Duolingo account to learn Chinese and hope that they're still buying expensive players. But, you know, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to give you credit, Tim, because you're right. Like, finding a way to make Willie work is a good thing. I just don't know that there's a lot of appetite for people right now uh, being sympathetic to that sure. idea. Um, and, you know, look, I mean... Lacazette had a ridiculous 1.77 expected goals in this game, which is bananas. But like Aubameyang had 0.85. Like 
if you do that every game, you're right among the absolute best strikers in football. And I realize you can't, that's not how those statistics are meant to work, but it's the point that like he did the Aubameyang stuff just without the call, uh, without the goal. Um, Clive, the, well, since William came up, let, let, let's talk about this. I mean, when it was time to make the switch, it was William that comes on and not Pepe. And, you know, I, I think that this was a thing that for a lot of people was really discouraging. I don't know that I cared because I wasn't going to let anything ruin my enjoyment of 4-0 over Sam Allardyce on a day when we played our best attacking football of the season and, and probably the best half we've had since Arteta got here. So, no, I was I was thrilled regardless. Um, and he he had a shot on, to- on target, his second of the season. So let's give credit where it's due. But I do think that that raises some eyebrows, and I think it is a question that is worth asking now, which is, do you think we're moving into a situation where whatever you think of the talent, the Pepe Arsenal career thing just looks like it's on a trajectory to not work out, that we probably need to cash in on that and and reevaluate how we address that position? Because, um, you know, William comes on, he's fine. We've got William. We're not going to be able to offload him. Pepe still probably has some value in the market. Um you know, am, am I reading too much into this, or are we starting to see a pretty clear indication from Arteta and the club that he's just not, it's just not going to happen, you know? Oh, I, I just thought it was a cold day. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think sometimes we, it was a cold day, and he brought on the player that probably wasn't freezing, right? So, um, so that's it. I didn't, I didn't read anything into it. Um, people have their views on Pepe, and that's absolutely fine. He's suddenly been kicked to the turf. Never going to play again. He could easily play again. He could easily play uh, on the right, and Saka could play ten. If Saka plays ten, we'd probably think, oh, because well, he's going to be so good at it that we'd probably think, oh, Smith Rogan, where's he going to go? Trick is, you know, the trick is let's get a few more players like this who are quite smart and good. Um, look at Man City yesterday. I don't think anybody watched it. They got loads of these players. Mares came off the bench. They got Ferran Torres that wasn't in the squad. They've got Bernardo Silva, Foden, De Bruyne, smart, intelligent, attacking midfielders, Sterling, loads. We need to, if you're thinking, considering we've got a manager that's just come from there, if you're thinking what's the future of Arsenal, there's room for a Pepe, a one stand-up dribbler who's like the Mares of the squad. There's room for a Smith-Rowe, there's room for a Saka. There's room for these players. We need more of them. We need to be comfortable with certain people not starting all the time. You know, because the last couple of weeks, look at Bellerin has a couple of weeks off, look much better for it. Much better for a couple of games off. Tobias, who I'm not really a super fan of, look much better after having a couple of games sitting down. You've got to get comfortable with it because that's that's the modern game, isn't it? And the modern game is you play every three days and you can't do it with one eleven. And so what we need to be thinking about is what types do we need? You know, what types of players. And those players that can take the ball on back foot, half turn, can travel both ways. When we lose the ball, they can counter press. They can do that. Now, Pepe now is, is maybe one that sticks out a little bit because he's very individual, not always clean, but can do some magical things based on when they're coming. A bit like Mares. He doesn't play every week for City. Doesn't play every week. Sterling had to make his game a lot more solid, you know, a lot more defensively minded so he could be playing every week. That wasn't always the case with Liverpool and his early days at Man City. He had to go and earn it. And then will Pepe make it? I'm not so sure. I'm generally 50-50. But I hope he does because his talent and things that he can do are um, significant. And um, and again, we just forget people very, very quickly. And um, William, I'm less, I'm less enamoured with um, just due to the age, 
due to the, we spoke about Tierney transmitting certain things to us. Mm. William does not transmit things to me that make me think I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that's the one that bothers me a little bit. And if you think we just don't do that deal, and you're watching the emergence of Saka and Smith Rowe three months later, you think yourself, crikey, somebody at the club's thinking, did we need to do that? You know, it really has come that quickly. But Martelli's only just come back in. So you look at it all and you think, actually, no one could maybe see Smith Rowe's ascension to being so quick. Martelli we knew about. He seems to have come back in good shape. So it's a, it's a gamble, right? But you don't take a three-year gamble when you've got that amount of talent in your club. And these things, these guys are not secrets to the club. They, they know all about them. But you can never quite tell when they're going to hit development-wise. I sent out a tweet before the game about um, Smith Rowe's trying to compare him to Conor Gallagher, who played for West Brom. And Conor Gallagher was in the under-17 team, and he was probably ahead of um, Smith Rowe. He went away to Swansea last year on loan, did really, really well, really well. And um, ends up at West Brom on loan. I'm thinking, you've had more probably game time than than Smith Rowe. And bang, Smith Rowe ate him on the weekend. Much better player on this day, at this period. Conor Gallagher was doing fantastically two months ago and suddenly had a little bit of a dip. It's very difficult for the club to work this out and to work out who's going to be in the team, who's going to stay in the team. So for me, I look at player types. I said what I said earlier. Let's get some more smart footballers who are good, that work in a certain work ethic. Pepe's got to develop that. If he doesn't, he might not make it, but I really do hope he does make it. Can I ask you a question about the thing that I was discussing with Tim? I mean, where do you stand? You do some coaching at a level where, you know, the economics are obviously very different. So, you know, it's probably not something that you have to really weigh at that level. But in terms of, you know, coaches have to win today. But managers, directors of football, they have to plan for the future. What do you think that right balance is of selecting teams based on what you're trying to build for the future in the sense that like realistically we kind of need Aubameyang to play more than Lacazette because of what we've committed to economically Martinelli Saka Smith Rowe they have to play because of the future you know um Tierney's an obvious one Gabriel would be another obvious one we're all obviously kind of critical of the Saliba situation for that very same reason because of the economics of that deal and the planning that was meant to be done and so when you look at like a William versus Pepe um, you know, William maybe on large money that we just gave him, Pepe maybe a little more resellable. You know, do, do you think that these decisions, these sort of structural squad building decisions, do factor into how you pick the team and who gets the playing time, or do you think they shouldn't if they do? Yeah, it absolutely does factor. Absolutely does. Your contract basically dictates the hierarchy, right? So you have different levels of contracts at Arsenal. You have your top contracts. You have your your senior pro contract. Then you have like your mid-level contract, you know, like your Willocks and them, on their 40 granders, Maitland Niles, that sort of range. And you have your holdings and your chambers on the 60 granders. And there's, there's, there'll be like wage levels in, within the club. And you don't really want one of your high wage earners sitting there not, not playing. And so you'll always give that player probably a, a chance. And that happens down at non-league as well. If we're playing, you know, somebody playing a player on two hundred quid a week and he's not playing, and he's not playing, that's that's a big deal. Now, not only they can just go to another club, so it's not the end of the world, but it's like it's a big deal. We've got a contracted player that's on good money, and he's not paying, sitting on your bench, and you're still paying him the money. That's not smart, right? And it's even more prevalent at that level because there's not that much money to throw around. So it does make a difference. 
contract, contract length, wages, bonuses, appearances. These are the stuff, the unseen stuff that really does drive the hierarchy in the dressing rooms. When you make a decision on somebody, you better be really thinking about it smartly. You better make sure you're giving that person a chance. So you can say, I've played him for five games. He did nothing for me. You know what I mean? It literally is like well, that. Yeah, I mean, maybe not at Arsenal, Clive, but, but like I can imagine at Chelsea, for example, like if Lampard wasn't picking Timo Werner, he's going to get a call from Roman Abramovich being like, uh, hey, I paid a yeah. lot of money for this guy. Why is he not in your team? Whereas at Arsenal, I'm not sure not who would make Abramovich. that call. <laughs> you might get a call from Adidas, for example. You yeah, know, good you point. might get an a agent, call yeah. from... <laughs> Yeah, from an agent. You know, this is the this is the this is the world of football. It really is. How you walk through the door empowers you. It actually empowers you. You, I, you often hear me say the thing: watch the video when David Luiz joined Arsenal. Watch it, and you will see all you need to see about how empowered he felt. You know, walking into our club, thinking he can run the show. There are things that happen behind the scenes with agents, with sponsorships, with deals, with, with companies, with clauses. Um, appearance money, gold bonuses, win bonuses, trust me, there's a whole new world out there. A whole new world. And the club manages out on a day-to-day basis. On a day-to-day basis. And it does make some of the selections to us feel a little bit weird. But there are other drivers behind it. I'm not saying that happens with, with Arsenal, but um, you say it does happen. And when you're looking to exit somebody, sometimes you need to play them to exit them. You need to, or sometimes you just need to sh- to show them to say back to people to say, look, you've played. Here's your data. You haven't quite done it. We need to move you. Start looking for something. There are so many different ways and styles of moving with behind the scenes. If you tell I me, mean. I'm not going to say this is what Arsenal are doing, but I just want to make it clear. There's a lot that goes into selection and keeping players and contracts are a massive part of that, and they define someone's stability within the hierarchy of a dressing room. And only when a player likes me throw comes along and literally rips the shirt off someone's back, that's that's what you got to do when you're a young player. Do exactly what he's done. I'm coming in and I'm ripping the shirt off somebody's back, and you've got to make adjustments for me now. Mm-hmm. And that's what you that's what that's your dream as a young player doing exactly what Smith Rowe's doing. Yeah, I mean, if you think of the players almost like a stock market in a way, right? Like you have your cost, you know, your sunk cost, how much money, you know, what, you, what your acquisition cost was, what, what your cost averages for owning them. Is their stock going up? Can you sell them for more than you bought them for? Is their stock going down? Are you losing money on them because they're not playing things? And like, you know, you don't want to pick your team every day based on that stock market evaluations. But I think at some level, you know, when you give like an Aubameyang 300,000 a week, it's inevitable that those kinds of things weigh in when you pay 72 million pounds for a player like we did with Pepe. Now, I think in that case, like a Pepe, because it was Raul's deal and it's a deal that's a little bit shady as it's been dug into and like th- there may be extenuating circumstances there. But like with a Willian, especially if Arteta had any, if he was involved in the pursuit of Willian and there's disputed um, accounts of that, but if he was, you have a much harder time saying to ownership, hey, I'm not playing this guy we just gave a big contract to late in his career who I wanted because he stinks. Like, <laughs> So the, all of these things become a, a complication. Now, as great as things have been, Paul... I think the area where we could still see improvement is midfield because I think a lot of this has been happening not because of midfield but in spite of midfield. Now, to be fair, I thought, um, you know, Shaka was a man of the match against Chelsea and I thought Tobias actually grew into this match well and, and played perfectly fine. But midfield isn't the oil in the engine for this resurgence. It's the the three behind the one. It's the 
the role of Lacazette playing more as, as a traditional number nine, it's the fullbacks joining in. A lot of our, our buildup and our, our threat comes from the fullbacks, Smithrow, Saka, Lacazette. Not so much from midfield. Now, to be fair, central midfield doesn't, you know, doesn't have to be the final ball piece, but I, but I do think that there's an opportunity for that department to really improve. And I think with Partey's return on the horizon and his progressiveness and his ability to just punch that ball forward quickly you know, into, into someone like a Smith Rowe, I think that it's exciting thinking about how that can change the dynamic. So do you sort of agree with the premise that central midfield is the, is the next department that can improve? And do you have some thoughts on maybe how it might look when Party comes back, has Ceballos made it a case for being the guy who who plays there? Do you think, you know, he, he'll stick with Shaka despite the fact that those two don't always look complimentary? How do you how do you see midfield shaping up? Uh, oh yes, in terms of the area where we can really pick up, I don't have any deep thoughts on this except Party good, uh, four legs bad. No, no, that's <laughs> not quite right. Uh, party good, right? Um, and like I think. Like we've seen Party and um, what, what's the name of that other midfielder? Oh yeah, El Nani. Mm. Uh, we've seen those two guys playing good. Sabayas uh, will look a lot better with the Party there because he's he's got more coverage there, and uh, uh, we kind of group Sabayas with the too many touches, side to side, doesn't play fast enough. I don't actually think that's Sabayas. That's kind of just the rut our midfield got into. So I think he can definitely uptick here. Um, but even as it is, even with Ceballos, say, and Chaka, when you see what Smith Rowe does really well is just drop in and become that third midfielder. He's just five, ten yards ahead of them. There's a turnover. He'll drop in, pick up the ball, and and bring it upfield. That's that's what he did for Huddersfield time and time again. He, you know, they, they were a team who had to sit a bit deeper because – they were 17th, 18th in the table, 19th. So <clears throat> they were typically under pressure in midfield, and he'd drop in, he'd be the third guy. So he, even without party, I think our midfield is already better um, and can get a little better still. I think party plus Chaka will actually be pretty good because party, Smithrow, and Chaka in your midfield takes a lot of pressure off Chaka. He he doesn't have to be the guy. And, you know, we sometimes you have to wipe your eyes and think, is is like even in this game, uh, Chaka's kind of low-key against West Brom, but he's actually pretty good. He's moving that ball around. Like the side-to-side, the, the um, <clears throat> let me think, make sure I got this right. Yeah, so the Saka goal starts with uh, a Bellerin throw-in and... Sabias on the right and and Sabias scrambles through a tackle knocks it off to the left Chaka up to the wing to uh, to Abamyang who's on the left back to Chaka to Sabias up to Bellerin so it goes through Sabias and Chaka now it's kind of low key stuff but they move it along quite nicely and they do that stuff well and like when you're beginning to hum and buzz a little bit you got a little more space I think Sabias Chaka uh, you know, there's there's mileage even within this midfield for it to improve, and I think it has improved. And I think parties a significant upgrade that'll buy even more time and space for Chaka, uh, who can who's a pretty good hustler in midfield. He's he's been our most one of our most pressing players in one or two of these games, especially against Chelsea. Sabayas uh, was actually our our pressing agent in this game. He had 21 presses. The next was Aubameyang with 12. 
and 11, 10 for the other guys. But Ceballos was 21. So y- you never quite know who's who's going to have the freedom to make something happen. But um, I think Party buys us a lot. Smith Rowe buys us a lot. And we're already beginning to see some of that. So I think our midfields, uh, if Smith Rowe keeps playing at this level, um, and that's that's a question mark, but this is what he did at Huddersfield from from what I could see of it. Mm. Um, so it's not just three games. This is exa- like, go and look at, there's a nine-minute high, highlights uh, of Smith Rowe at Huddersfield. Go and have a look at it. It's just Back to back, he only started uh, uh, thirteen games for them, and yet this thing is just full of like three, four second clips of him doing exactly what you've seen him do for us in the last three games. This is what this is who he is. I pray. Mm. Well, I mean, uh, Clive, I actually, I, Tim, I, I have a question for you, but but I want to let Clive in just for a second because I know you have a, a strong thought about what happens when Party and Shaka play together, um, or at least you've talked about it in the past. Do you think it's important to kind of get Shaq out of the lineup when Party comes back so he can take the role of being the central figure in the midfield, the hub that everything flows through? Because when we've seen them play together, and I realize we're talking about a very small sample size, but it's tended to leave Shaka with the role of, of being the primary distributor. Yeah, the way we use the second person in a double pivot is can vary. You know, sometimes they and then he drops it on the right hand side to make the back three. Shaka's dropping to the left hand side to make the back three. If Shaka does a left hand side back three thing, party needs to be in the middle of the pitch. He just sees the game really well and he he goes and engages more often and he can obviously do more things when the ball arrives at him. So he's not just restricted to a pass off one foot. If, he, if the lanes are blocked, he can just run through the gap and then play the pass, and obviously we're moving forward. So, for me, Party will be that central player. If I'm signing for Arsenal, if I'm him, apart from the, the two-and-a-half times wage jump, I'm thinking I want to be central, and eventually the philosophy will probably move to a 4-3-3, although I'm not so sure. But if it does go to 4-3-3, then he's perfectly suited to the guy at the base, but could also play up on the right or left-hand side, so it doesn't really matter. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because Shaka is a very, um, he's a very dominant personality, and he wants everything to come through him. And I'm not sure he can defer like Elneny does, and like Sabias does on occasion. I'm just not sure if that's in him. I'd like to think it is. I've seen him play with for Switzerland, and he and he'd, he has a very strong running <clears throat> Vieira lookalike playing with him on his name now so apologies who plays in centre midfield with uh, Zachariah that's it mm. Zachariah who plays in centre midfield with um, with him and that's when I first saw those two together I thought that's the future for Arsenal <laughs> it took about four years to get here right so um, but Zachariah is not as good on the ball in my opinion as party is and not as creative he's, he's a strong running player that drives covers tackles so yeah it's gonna be, I'm just not sure how it's going to look and my opinion is that we need a change in there eventually in the summer and it should be parties midfield and then we put people around him which allow him to move this along into a different direction and that's perfectly fine. You know, Shaka's been here a long, a fair long time. We all know what he is. We all know what he is and it's time to move on and that should happen a lot more quickly on the number of players at Arsenal um, but hey, we know yeah. the drill here, don't we? So there you go. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, so then on that note, let's finish with this, Tim. It is the transfer window. It is your specialty, this this topic. So I, I want to make sure <laughs> to ask you about it. But all kidding aside, I mean, look, 
There's rumors Saliba going to Nice on loan, which I think makes sense. That's a situation that I think we botched, but whatever. I mean, him going to Nice seems fair. Uh, some other players may be going out, whether Reese Nelson, Joe Willock, I think makes sense in both cases. But the issue really centers around, um, you know, I know we're looking apparently at Julian Brandt. We're looking at Emmy Bendia, and the Bendia links seem to be the hottest links of all. This is a tricky situation for any club, right? Every single human being who knows anything about Arsenal eight weeks ago would have said Arsenal need to target an attacking midfielder, a creative influence in the center of the park. Um, in the summer, we went for a war, which obviously was sensible. We were linked with Zobislai, sensible. And now here comes Smith Rowe. You know, a 20-year-old guy with a big injury track record, but who looks to be a big, big talent who is playing the way we we would dream a player in that position would play so far in a small sample size. Where do you stand on the idea of going and getting a guy like Buendia? How you manage the expectation of the development of a player like Smith Rowe with the clear need mm-hmm. to have a senior central attacking midfield type presence, another facilitator, another creator in the team, or maybe we don't have the clear need. Maybe it should all fall on Smith Rowe. I mean, how, you know, we, we have made this mistake, right? We had Pepe and we bought Willian and we, you know, we moved to Wobion to presumably make room for Saka, but we, we bought Lacazette, then we bought Aubameyang, right? There are, there are times when it seems you need to reinforce a position and go big to do that. And times when you worry it can block the paths of other players. So, how does a club get this right? I think this is one of those mm. tricky situations where, depending on your perspective, you could find a way to praise the club for its ambition or damn them for, you know, whatever you perceive the error to be. Do you have a Do you have a sense of how you manage a tough situation like this? A young, injury prone player that is impressing in an area that just eight weeks ago would have clearly been prioritized as the most urgent area of need. Yeah, sure. So the first thing is um, is your communication um, with the individual. Uh, I imagine in this scenario that would come from Edu. So you you know let let's say we're looking to buy that player. That that's where your communication with the individual comes in, and you say, look, we we are looking to buy someone in this area. That's because you're literally the only thing we have like this. And as a club, we need a bit more than that. And obviously, we're looking after your development as well. We're looking after your body. Um, you know. We're usually in the Europa League. Hopefully, we'll be in the Europa League as a minimum next year again. There are plenty of games. Like, there are plenty of games. And, you know, there's games for everybody there. In in terms of... So, so I think you just, you just kind of explained that to him. And I, and I still don't think three games is quite enough to go from... Oh no, we're just gonna like like we're just gonna let you carry this. Um, and we've done that with young players before, and it's pretty much never ended well. Um, mm. We've ruined their bodies, and and that's been the end of it. And it's hurt the club as well. So I think you can have a mature conversation with the guy and say, look, we, we've shown you what we think of you. We we played you. We played you against Chelsea when we hadn't won for two months. Like we believe in you. Um, and then we continue to play you afterwards, but you can't play every minute of every game. You know that we know that. And look, you're at Arsenal. Um, there's going to be like a bit of competition and rotation and stuff like that. So I, I think you just you have that conversation, and you you know you can say to him, we still think of you as the first choice. This guy's coming to compete with you, whatever, whatever. But but really, I think the best way to treat this um, from a, a kind of a technical strategic viewpoint uh, again fitting in with the point earlier of having um you know having like seven or eight players that can fit into that front four is and and to be fair 
if Brandt and and uh, Buendia are the players that we're looking at, and it sounds like we are, it kind of sounds like we're doing this. Have someone who can play like number eight, number ten, and wide. You know, just have another creative player. Um, and I know Paul spoke about this on the Instant Reaction podcast as well. You need more than one. Um, Fabregas for me was at his best in an Arsenal shirt when he had Rosicki and Kleb either side of him, those secondary creators. So. Um, I, you know, I think Saka looks like, um, you know, a good secondary creator, maybe even more than that. But we, we need something more in there. And that's the end of it. And and the way you set that up with the player as well as you say, OK, we can rely on you and only you um, and you can try and play 55 games a season and we might finish eighth and we might, you know, go far in one of the cups or whatever. Or we can buy someone to support and rotate with you and compete with you and perhaps play in different positions behind the front player. And, you know, we can get in the top four and we can win a trophy. Which one would you prefer? I I think I know which one the player would prefer. It's like, do you want 35 games in a really good team or do you want 50 games in an average team? Um but but I th- I think really aside from all those conversations having having that player who can do a bit of both, um, you know who can play right left and number ten, um, and you know Buendia can do that. I understand that Julian Brandt can as well. I, I don't know as much about that player, um, and then you know just giving yourself different options so that again you've got seven or eight players who can fit into that front four, and then and then you say to like Smithrow or someone like that you know, look, we'll play you with this guy. This guy might, he might go and play on the left. He might go and play on the right. You might go and play on the left or the right while he plays number 10 and you can come in and combine. Like like good players will always be interested with playing with other good players. Um, so, I, you know, I think as long as we make it known to Smith Rowe how important, and, and Saka um, and players like that, how important we regard them to be. And you kind of say, we're, we want to do this to supplement you. We want to do this to bring in guys who we think are in line with what we see your ceiling as so that you can play and be a big part of a really big team. But but yeah, let, let, let's have someone that can. And I think, to be fair, most modern creative players are capable of playing right, left or center. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it is. You're never going to get this perfectly right, but you know, I mean, you look at a Manchester City. They used to play De Bruyne and and uh, Silva together, with sort of one holder behind them in a four three three, right? Uh, one, so maybe it's Party at the base, and it's a Bendia and an ESR ahead of them playing sort of the the Silva and De Bruyne roles. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can play it. You can, as you said, move them left or right into the front line if you need to. Um, I think the key for me is you want ideally that player you go get if you really like. Smith Rowe's potential, and I, I think we probably do. I'd like that that guy we get to be someone who can be a little more box to box. Maybe that's not, you know, maybe I'm asking for a unicorn at that point. A box to box creative player scores goals and gets assists, and Kevin De Bruyne is not on the market. So I don't know. It'll all be determined in time. I think we should leave it there, and because um, we got a lot more coming up. The, the the table is looking so much different now. And the one thing I will say about adding players. If you're back in the Europa League next season, if you're back in Europe, you have a lot more games, you have a lot more ways to get players onto the pitch and contributing. If we are a one-game-a-week club next season, what you need in a squad and what you can afford in a squad is very different. So you're rolling the dice a little bit in January with the hope hope that it pays out um, in at the end of the season. And, and the way the table looks now, I mean, who knows? You know, Frank Lampard about to get the sack, 
potentially. And, and now Mikel Arteta looking like the, the genius again that we all thought he was and, and believed in him from the start. So that's good. Um, we have a lot more coming up. We'll have a, a feature on Smith Row tomorrow. We'll have a transfer pod on Wednesday. We'll have an analytics pod, I think, on Thursday. And then another uh, pod for everybody on Friday. So a full week of content as we finally get a week off of Arsenal playing every 10 minutes. But we'll be doing a pod every 10 minutes. So one replaces the other. In any event, thanks, everybody. Uh, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. No. All right. Tim's on Twitter. So, brother, thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. No. Still no. Woohoo. There we go. Got him in. Woohoo. The end. Ah, there uh, it is. Apologies. Uh-huh. I was in one of my feisty moods. Today, I, I assumed so you. I assumed I you were sulking. just. I was sulking. No, no, no. I, th- I assumed you were just recording a video. Um, in any event, uh, we, we love you. Thank you so much for being here. Happy 2021. Things looking up for the Arsenal. Hopefully looking up for the Globe as well. Come on, Globe. Come on, you blue rock. And uh, and that's good. And so I guess it's Newcastle. Is that. Do we know when that is? Is it? It's a Saturday game at, at the Emirates. Is that Saturday. right? Saturday. Yep, Saturday, half past five. Half five Saturday for the FA Cup. The Arsenal Invitational begins in earnest against Newcastle on Saturday. So we look forward to that. We look forward to talking to you all week. Hope you're taking care of yourself. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I know the lockdowns are a little tricky for everybody, but we are here together and we love you. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Newcastle 0.